the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you've heard the show, hey, welcome. If you've heard it before, you know the first part of the show we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show we talk about politics, history, religion. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about politics and history with Thomas Woods, who works for uh, Regnery Press and the Politically Incorrect Guides. He wrote the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. And now they have a video series, and the first first up in the video series is Constitution. So we're going to be talking to Thomas Woods about that. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, Regnery is actually associated with Salem. It's the same ownership of both companies. So the radio station that funds us broadcasting to you are also the ones that put out the books that Regnery publishes. So it's all one big family here, and we're very happy to support them. All right, so, and like I said, the second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and they're not equal parts, and and today, as you just heard, my son Michael's on the show, and my wife, Beth. I'm here. Okay. Now, if somebody wants to email us a question, Michael, where do they email us a question to? If you want to send us an email question, um, it might be right on air, we might just get back to you personally, but either way... AskMikeConnors at gmail.com is the address you're going to want to send it to. That's AskMikeConnors, Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at gmail.com. All right, so Beth, what, what questions do we have to be answered today? Well, we've got two for sure. Um, the first one is, I am an agent under a durable power of attorney for a friend with a challenging form of dementia. I can no longer serve as her agent, and she has no other friends willing to do it. What are my options? Okay, well, again, assuming there's not an alternate on the path of attorney who's willing to serve, as you just mentioned, uh, one of the clauses that you have on, on the standard New York path of attorney is that you can delegate the duties to someone else. So we've done this occasionally, you, you know, where a law firm, can take up the duties because if you if you read the paragraphs under the power of attorney, one of the paragraphs said you can delegate some of your duties in all apart to someone else. So she could hire a law firm to handle the you know the charges. So you know that that's one way to do it, or you know an accountant or someone else. 
Um, obviously, it's going to be more, a little bit more expensive than if you just did things yourself. But if you're not able to do the job, you're not able to do the job. And another alternative, which I would not like at all, you can ask a court to appoint a guardian. And the problem with that, it's a court proceeding. It gets very expensive. A lot of your friends' money will be going to court-appointed lawyers. And, and, you know, even if you have the best guardian in the world, there's still a lot of red tape involved. And they have to go to court to get court permission to, to pay some bills. And they have to do an accounting. And after the person's gone, the assets are tied up in court for, you know, quite a long time. So that's an option if there's absolutely nobody else and that's just what has to be done and your friend has to go to a nursing home and you need somebody to sign the papers. And before that happened, I would, would really like to talk it over and see if you can remain as, as PAV attorney and delegate some of those powers and so forth. And and here's one thing, you know, going back, why do you have a PAV attorney? You have a PAV attorney so in case you become incompetent, in this case I think we're talking about Alzheimer's, it could be a stroke. One of the one of the major things that hits us suddenly without warning is a stroke. Uh, it could be Parkinson's, but those diseases they you know they work on the brain, and sometimes a person is not able to to adequately care for their finances. They can't pay their bills. They can't access their money in bank accounts because they're just unable to do so. And that's one of the reasons you have a PAV attorney. And, I mean, there could be a hundred reasons you have a PAP attorney. Sometimes you just have a 90-some-odd-year-old per- person who's a little bit too tired to balance their checkbook, and they want somebody else to do it for them. There, there could be a hundred different reasons to do a PAP attorney. Some just check on banking statements. Just check on, on you know, you, you get something in the mail from an insurance company, and you want somebody to check on it for you because you're not up to it right now. Well, that's where a PAP attorney comes into play. I mean, this happens all the time. You know, kids come in and, you know, my, my father has this uh, insurance policy and we had a question about it. And I spoke to the insurance company and said, well, we can't talk to you. You're not authorized to, to, to talk to us about your father's insurance, medical insurance, whatever kind of insurance. Well, if we have a PAV attorney, then you are able to talk to that company about your father's problems or whatever. A PAV attorney is a written document notarized right now in New York under current law witnessed by two people. Now, years ago, we didn't have to have it witnessed by two people. It was just notarized. And if you did a PAV attorney, and this is one of the myths that goes around once in a while, you know, somebody goes into a bank with the, an old PAV attorney, and the bank officer says, no, this is an old PAV attorney. We don't have to accept it. Well, the law was written that if you did the PAV attorney before the law was changed, it's still valid. And that's, you know, you got to take a look at these things, and, and if you have any questions about that, that's where you can always call us at Connors and Sullivan, because we've been working with Powers Attorney for you know forty years now. I've been an attorney since uh, nineteen nineteen eighty. Longer than you want to remember, right? Sometimes. Which is more than forty years ago, <laughs> and you know we've seen practically everything happen. You know, sometimes we joke around it. You know, to, to from the this ridiculous to the sublime and back and forth, and anywhere in between. So. If you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, most of you know we used to do seminars, and, and we'd go all around the city and do seminars in different places. Right now, obviously, we can't do a seminar in person, but Michael, where can you see our seminars on, on YouTube? Yeah, if you just go on the internet, go to youtube.com, we keep it nice and simple, and search Connors & Sullivan Video Seminar. That's Connors & Sullivan video seminar 
on YouTube. All you have to do is punch it in the search button. You don't need to memorize a URL, nothing like that. Just Connors and Sullivan video seminar. And, you know, one thing I think we mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, you know, whatever language, usually no matter what language you speak, we have somebody here who, who can cover it. And, you know, whether it's Spanish, Italian, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Serbian, We've got Chinese, Slovakian, Chinese, three Greek, Chinese dialogue, dialects, right? right? Greek, you know, we some Indian languages. We don't even remember all the languages. That right, we I have can't here. remember at one time. But if you have somebody that needs some planning and they're a little nervous about their first language, give us a call. There's a good shot. We've got somebody here who can handle it. And you know, that's we're multicultural to put it mildly, Connors and Sullivan. We're a world of immigrants. Yep. Now, Beth, what's the next question on our... Okay. This is another tough one. My mom is in a nursing home and receiving Medicaid. She owns a home jointly with her children. Can we sell or rent the home while she is in the nursing home? What happens with the money? Okay, well, that's a good question. Obviously, you can sell it or rent it, but the question is, what are the consequences of it? And, and again, if she owns it jointly... If you don't have a PAV attorney, you may not be able to sell it. Now, if mom's competent, if she's not competent, then you have to go to court and get a guardianship. And again, I don't think under these circumstances you'd want to do it. Here's, here's the problem. Mom owns an interest in the property. Uh, if she sells the property, she's in a nursing home, she's on Medicaid. Whatever percentage of the property she owns is an asset, and a good part of that will go to the nursing home. So that's not necessarily a good result. Then we get into capital gains. Let's say mom paid $20,000, $30,000 for the house you know, 40 years ago, and it's worth a million dollars today. Well, depending on the circumstances, and of course, in this case, I don't know if any of the children lived in the house, which would change the circumstances somewhat. But let's say none of the children lived in the house, and mom paid $20,000 for the house 40 years ago and it's worth a million dollars now, when you sell that house, you're going to have an $800,000 cap, uh, 800, I'm sorry, $980,000 capital gain tax on what I just talked about, which means $300,000 plus to the government. And that's not necessarily a good idea. Plus part of the sales price would go to the nursing home. So yes, you can sell it assuming mom's competent or you have a good path attorney, but I don't think that's the kind of result you want to look for. So you you could rent the house out. Now, in theory, mom's share of the profit would go to the nursing home, but ordinarily if you have a one or two family house and you rent it out, you're lucky to break even. You're not making a real profit. You may make a, a slight profit or whatever. And again, in theory, the profit goes to the you know, the nursing home, but the children could also sign a management agreement or do things like that. Well, we can keep a profit you know, pretty much to a bare minimum, if at all. Might technically have a paper loss on the tax returns a lot of times on a one or two family house. You know, and of course, this is a mortgage is almost definitely going to be a loss on it. So, yeah, you can rent it out, and that might be the best way to keep it out. I assume none of the children live in the house. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about renting it. So that way, that's where you really could get killed on the capital gains on the other side. Now, and, and here's one other thing. Assuming the children didn't pay anything for the house, and it's joint with mom, which is not the ideal way to do things, but... We deal with the cards that have been already played. Um, 
if we hold the house till after mom's gone, assuming the children didn't pay anything for the house, we could then argue that the whole house is mom's for tax purposes, which means in that point we would get what we call a stepped-up basis. So if the house is worth a million dollars on the day mom's gone, uh, and the children sell the house for a million dollars, we probably don't have to pay capital gains tax. And what I see probably, listen, the law could change. There are a lot of dangerous things that are being talked about in Washington right now. Well, that's what I was hearing. It, you know, stepped-up basis is going to be removed. Yeah. I, I, I don't know because, you know, all it takes is one Democrat not to vote for that. And remember, even some Democrats from, from red states may not want their taxpayers in revolt against them. You know, because they may be tentative as it is. So, and all you need is really one Democrat to abstain, abstain in I the mean, tax rates. I, I think it's arguable that Joe Manchin is now the most powerful person in Washington. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But, you know, even even in the past when Obama was president, there were some Democratic senators from the, you know, um, from what we would call red states. And they would not always vote for tax increases. And that's why there were some compromises during the Obama administration where it wasn't really that bad tax-wise because some Democrats from red states weren't willing to go along with it. And, you know, right now the Senate in this theory, not in theory, in actuality, is 50-50. So all it takes is, is one Democratic senator to abstain or not vote. So hopefully not a lot of crazy things are going to happen in the next two years. Yes, I am very worried. Don't get me wrong. I am very worried that some strange tax laws are going to get passed. Look at New York. Look what happened in New York when the Democrats got a supermajority, and look how they've screwed things up. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I may sound partisan. I guess I am partisan. But at the same time, I don't think anybody can say New York hasn't been screwed up in the last couple of years since they completely took control of the government. And I'm afraid some of those things are going to happen in Washington. But hopefully... There's not a super majority there, so hopefully there'll be some common sense, you know, some reasoning on it, and we'll we'll see what happens. And listen, if you come to our office, here's one thing. Any plan I give you, I think it out tax-wise. I do not want you to come into the office and pay more in taxes, or your kids pay more in taxes, than they would otherwise. Any plan I give you is going to be thought out that we don't pay more in government taxes than we should. And and I mean, that is, I think, one, one of the things that Marks, Connors, and Sullivan, we want to save your kids money. You know, sometimes people do some planning and they, they do it partially. In other words, they do some planning to avoid probate, but they hurt, it, hurt you on the capital gains taxes. Same thing. You want to save assets from a nursing home, but you get hurt on, on capital gains taxes or whatever. What we want to do is come up with a plan where we save on capital gains taxes, save on estate taxes, gift taxes, and if need be, avoid probate and not have to pay any estate death taxes. That's our goal. Listen, we're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to be talking to Kevin McCullough. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we get a real-life question answered from Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, the, uh, the, the authorities on all things related to estate care and elder law. And, Mike, this week's question comes from uh, Glenda. She says, can you please explain to me what a power of attorney is and why anyone would need one? Mike Connors? Okay, well, it may be a little bit hard to get completely what a power of attorney is, but basically a power of attorney, it's a notarized document witnessed by two people in New York where you give authority to someone else to sign your name. Usually we do it in the context like if you have a stroke or another disabling illness. Somebody else, usually a family member, can sign your your name to any business matters that may come up. And one of the reasons you may need it, husband or wife. Husband has a stroke. He's going to a nursing home. Wife wants to apply for Medicaid to pay for those nursing home bills. Well, with the power of attorney, she can transfer the assets from husband and wife to wife. Wife does what we call a spouse or refusable. The husband get Medicaid within a few months. So that's one of the main reasons. But it could be for paying bills. 90-year-old person wants somebody else to pay the bills for them. There are a 1,000 uses for the power of attorney, but I, I just gave you two. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And friends, maybe you've got a question about how to set yours up. Call the uh, Connors and Sullivan Law Firm. They will help you uh, establish this super simple. 718-238-6500 is the number. 718-238-6500. And send your questions for Mike Connors to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And then be listening as he answers one question every week here uh, with Kevin McCullough, but also on his own broadcasts. 8 a.m. Saturday mornings on AM 5 70 and FM 102.3 The Mission WMCA and Sunday morning starting at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors thanks so much. Thank you Kevin. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you. 
protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. You can hear Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on WMCA The Mission at 3 o'clock Monday through Friday. Uh, Monday through Friday, you can hear him on 970 The Answer at 7 p.m. And also he does a little bit of time with John Katsimatidis during the week on Wednesdays. So Kevin McCullough's on all the time right now, but uh, thanks again to Kevin. And and Michael, of course, with Kevin, where, where do they email us a question? Any email questions you want to direct to us can be sent to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, C-O-N-N-O-R-S. And we will either get back to you personally, or you might hear your answer, your question answered on air. So either way, you're going to hear from us. Uh, you, you know, our next guest, again, Thomas Woods, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, and working with Regnery Press, they're working on a series, an animated series, kind of like cartoon series, I guess you would call it. But the first in their line of series, talking about the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, I I don't think anybody really understands the Constitution the way it was formulated back in the, the, you know, the late 1700s. And and including myself, I, I have to admit, I really don't know the Constitution as well as I should. And maybe we should all learn part of it. And, and and I mean, there were reasons, and I mean, this part I do understand. The people who framed the, the Constitution of the United States, they were brilliant. And they had the foresight to give us a document that could last for hundreds of years. Now, I know a lot of people are critical of the Constitution. A lot of people say they love the Constitution, but extremely critical and, you know, they don't follow the Constitution for their own political ends. But we should all learn more about the Constitution. And let's thank, you know, Regnery Press for doing this series about American history, starting with the Constitution. And our, our next guest, Thomas Woods. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask a Lawyer. Our next guest is Dr. Thomas Woods, who, among other things, is author of The Politically Incorrect incorrect guide to American History. And you guys now have a series out, and, and we're starting with the Constitution. We are indeed. 
Okay, so tell us tell us what the series is about, and and you know how, how does somebody hook up into that? Well, a number of years ago, I as you said, I wrote the politically incorrect guide to American history that did very well for Regnery Publishing, and they decided to do a whole series of books called the politically incorrect guide to, and then you can almost fill in the blanks of all the different topics you can cover with that title. So they probably have at least twenty books in the series, the politically incorrect guide to. And they said if my book had flopped, they were not going to do any more books in the series. So I tell all the other <laughs> authors, you better be darn thankful the old woods here didn't bomb. <laughs> there wouldn't have been any. You but anyway, so years later, uh, we had some readers of the, the books who really, really liked them, who thought they would be a, good, a suitable uh, jumping-off point for an animated series. So it's very weird to see yourself as a cartoon character, by the way. So my friend Michael Malice and I uh, were recruited to do this. And so every month we're going to be releasing a new episode where we take on some, you know, again, some kind of sacred cow. And it could be anything from the Supreme Court to the Great Depression or journalism or public schools or whatever it is. We started off our first episode, the only one that's out as of this recording, on the Constitution. And, uh, you know, it's, it just seems like this is the kind of thing that, Normally, if there's an animated series or there's some you know, good production kind of cultural thing, it's always on the left. It's always one particular predictable point of view. Well, you know, we're we're trying to be equal time. All right. So now, what is it about the Constitution that you go over? I mean, it's I, I assume you're not taking that it's a li- living, breathing document. You're not taking that point oh. of view. Oh, my God, I'd rather hang myself than try to make that argument. As a matter of fact, we had to think, we've got these short cartoons that we're making. And by the way, you were asking how you get them. Politically incorrect guide, the unfortunate acronym that that creates is PIG. Ah. So the the cartoon series can be found at pigseries.com. Pig series. There you okay. go, pigseries.com. Well, at least you can't so, forget fact, it. That's right. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen these... Uh, uh, Sometimes to cope with stress, uh, somebody will give you like a squeezable thing. Well, they gave all of us who wrote a book in the series a tiny pig with the Regnery logo on it that we could squeeze in moments of stress. And when you're somebody with my point of view, you have a lot of those moments of stress. So this pig is not quite looking exactly in mint condition, but but it's pigseries.com. Anyway, so in terms of the topics, we figure we got a 12 to 15 minute cartoon. There was so much to talk about with the Constitution, but I thought that living Constitution thing has to be one of them because uh, every single time you win an argument on the Constitution, one way you know you've won is when they say, well, the Constitution is a living document. That's What they're really saying is, okay, you got me. You got me. The Constitution doesn't say what I want it to say, but judges have interpreted it over the past couple hundred years to make it say what I want it to say. Well, that's what they call a living Constitution. And we are rejecting that out of hand for one reason. We think about what the American Revolution was fought over. Yes, no taxation without representation, but that's a small issue in the larger constitutional question at stake. The British had a constitution, but it was not written. And so you could argue about what was in it, what wasn't. But the idea was customary practice, tradition was what was constitutional. The British government couldn't just do arbitrarily anything it wanted to do, and if it did, that was unconstitutional. The thing is, it was like nailing jelly to a wall. The colonists would say, wait a minute, you're invading our homes, you're taxing us without our consent. 
this is all unconstitutional, and the British response was, well, it's constitutional because we say it is. So, yeah, that's a living, breathing constitution, and that's why we revolted against it. So what we have is the specific decision on the part of the framers to write down the Constitution was precisely to avoid this problem of the Constitution means one thing one day and it means another thing the next. If that's really what we have, then what we have is a dead Constitution, not a living one, because if it can change according to government whims, then it is not alive enough to be able to protect your liberties. Now, where did living, breathing Constitution, where did that come into play? When did that start? Uh, that's a, it's a 20th century innovation. Um, oh, and not, oh, for heaven's sake, and I even, in the, in the series, I named the exact, I'm trying to think, is it Brennan? I'm trying to think of which was the first one to actually use the phrase. They'd been using the idea without daring to, to, to coin a phrase, but it's the idea that we need to move beyond this thinking that we should think about what the original meaning of the words was or the original intention of the drafters was. Well, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we have to make the, the Constitution relevant to the present day. And, and Now, the thing is, you are allowed to amend the Constitution. It says that in there. That is part of the Constitution. You can amend it if you really think that some new conditions require a changing of the Constitution, then they included a provision for that. But the living, breathing Constitution people don't want to do that because it's cumbersome. There's no guarantee they're going to win. Uh, chances are they're going to lose in a lot of the things that they're fighting for. So their view is, well, rather than go down that road and honestly change the document, let's just reinterpret it so that we don't have to go to that. All we need is nine people. And, we, and really, of those nine, we only need five. We can get those. We probably can't get a, a majority. We can't get three-quarters of the states, or we can't get this or that. But I bet we could we could finagle five politically connected lawyers onto that court and get what we want, and that's been the strategy. Let me ask you, go back again. How do you amend the Constitution? How many states need to approve it, the state legislatures? How many senators need to approve it? You know, how, how do you amend the Constitution? What does it take to oh, amend oh, the Constitution? Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Well, there's one way to um, amend it. There are two ways to, to propose an amendment, but only one of them has been used. So it's possible that you could have a, a a, uh, an amendments convention or a constitutional convention uh, called by the states, and the states then come up with and propose uh, amendments. But what's actually happened is the other method has been used. So Congress can propose an amendment with a two-thirds majority vote in both houses. And then the question is, how does it then become part of the Constitution? That was, I, I made reference briefly to three-quarters of the states. Three-quarters of the states have to ratify it. So in the case of 50 states, you're, you're talking uh, 38 of them would then have to ratify it. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not meant to be a super easy process, or it, it wouldn't be quite so cumbersome. It would just be instantaneous. But I think that's on purpose. So if you're going to make a change to the fundamental law of the land, you better make darn sure you're really, really certain about it, and there's general consensus about it. All right. Now, uh, again, obviously, that's very cumbersome. So isn't there a, you know, hey, this is the 21st century. This is not the 18th century. Don't we need to change the Constitution more quickly? Well, first of all, we have a federal system, right? So the idea of a federal system is that power is broken up into bits. So the central government 
has certain powers delegated to it that are assumed to be powers that can be exercised efficiently only by it. But the rest of the powers are reserved to the states and the people. So it could well be that you think, uh, I, I sure wish in this day and age the government would do X, Y, or Z. Well, then that's what you can do in your state. Your state can do X, Y, or Z, and maybe your state can lead the nation in, in this wonderful innovation. Or maybe your state does X, Y, or Z, and it's a big flop, and we've thereby saved the country from going down that road because we got to see the laboratory of your state where it, where it failed. So the idea was primarily to have most decision-making be made at the state level, particularly because it was thought that people at the local level know their conditions best, and also you can minimize the damage done by bad decisions by confining it to a state, uh, and then we see if it, if it works or not. I mean, not everybody wants to be governed the way California is governed. Likewise, not everybody wants to be governed, uh, I suppose, the way Alabama is governed. So that's why we have California and why we have Alabama. Can you give us a, an example, and, and like the difference between the English Constitution and the U.S. Constitution, personal liberties, because I know talking to some people from the United Kingdom, they don't have freedom of speech the way we do. Yeah, see, this is the, again, I think even though the, the U.S. Constitution uh, hasn't been perfect, because if, if it had, I don't think we'd be suffering under a lot of the uh, problems we have now. It, I, it has not been sufficient to restrain uh, the government. But all the same, at least we have something we can point to. At least we can say, here's a First Amendment. You know, regarding the freedom of speech. And here are all these other amendments that are written in defense of what we consider to be fundamental liberties. What began to happen in the 18th century in the English case was that they, what we began to see introduced there was something like what we call legal positivism, whereby something is constitutional if the authorities in charge declare it to be so. If it's, if it's validly promulgated, and the authorities declare it constitutional, that makes it so. There isn't an independent body that you can appeal to apart from that to say, no, 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 this is not constitutional. Whereas we have a document that can't just be changed every five minutes. It, it's a document made up of real words with real meanings that endure over time. And I think that has at least, to some degree, kept us freer because, as I say, we can point to something that's not like nailing jelly to a wall. Because if I'm reduced to, well, it's constitutional as long as it's a long-standing tradition. Well, I don't know. They can weasel their way into making anything seem like a long-standing tradition. So I would much rather have the written word. And unfortunately, they haven't got that. They've got a collection of documents, and they've got uh, the parliament. And what more or less happened to the American Revolution was... The colonists had the old-fashioned view of, of the British Constitution. They said, you're doing things that are not in keeping with the traditional liberties of, uh, of, of Britons. And their answer was, uh, and so the colonists were saying, this is unconstitutional. And the British government's answer was, well, but if we've authorized it, that makes it constitutional. So there, there's no way you can reconcile those two different views, the, the traditional view held by the colonists and the more modern, suave, a fashionable point of view that, well, the Constitution is whatever we need it to be at a, a given moment in time. That was what it boiled down to. And as I say, that was a good deal of what, what uh, motivated the colonists to write down their own Constitution after independence. Second Amendment. 
Now, that obviously is probably going to be under attack over the next couple of years. Mm. What What do you think is the future of the Second Amendment, and, and what is your interpretation of the Second Amendment? Well, um, this is actually one of those areas where the courts have been not catastrophically bad, <laughs> where there have been some decent rulings saying that, yeah, you know, after all, it turns out the Second Amendment was not about the National Guard. Well, yeah, no kidding. Like, why would they, if it was about the National Guard, why would they need to put that in the Constitution, right? And especially in the context of the rights of individuals, which is what the Bill of Rights is all about. It wouldn't make any sense in that context. So thankfully, we do have, in fact, I think it's uh, Sanford Levinson of uh, University of Texas, who is a left liberal. He's, he's not an originalist. He's not a conservative. But he did a review of the literature, and he basically said, yeah, I mean, sorry, but the gun people are correct about the Second Amendment and being a right of an individual to have a gun. That, that is, there's no getting around that. Now we have to cope with the fact that they're right, but they clearly are right. So what the future of the Second Amendment has in store, well, I, my, my personal feeling is that the the number of people who own guns and feel strongly about them is is large and rising. And for all the years we've heard people claiming that uh, we're going to we're going to do this and that uh, and and there're going to be this and that restriction placed they actually come up against an awful lot of resistance. They talk big and then they get in power and they they have a, a real hard time getting getting away with it. So I I'm not as pessimistic about the Second Amendment. I think they'll try to batter at it, but it is uh, the the political clout of people who are in f- support of gun rights has kept the gun grabbers at bay for a very long time, and I feel confident they're going to keep keep doing that. You mentioned a word which which maybe hasn't been explained to much. What is an originalist? Uh, an originalist would be somebody like the late Justice Scalia who thought that the way we interpret the Constitution is by trying to understand what what the original intent behind it was. And the way we try to find out the original intent is primarily not by consulting the, the records we have of the Constitutional Convention itself, uh, because that was behind closed doors, and we didn't even have the notes for that for years afterwards, so that couldn't have been the original guide to us. It's consulting the state ratifying conventions. That's where the people were gathered in convention to decide whether or not to approve this document. And it's there that we find out through their commentary what they believed themselves to be getting themselves into. If we consult though that's what uh, James Madison says you do. You go to the state ratifying conventions and that's where you see people describing what the constitution is i mean if you're trying to understand the if you're looking at somebody's will for example you always want to look at what are what were the intentions of the testator you know you want to know what were the intentions well likewise i want to know what were the intentions of the people who agreed to this thing and that's that's where you look you don't say to yourself well i want a certain outcome in this case and i'm going to argue in reverse to make sure i get to that outcome it's, you put aside, to the extent that you possibly can, your own political prejudices, and you say, what, according to the ratifying conventions, does the federal government have the power to do? And if it doesn't have the power to do X, no matter how morally worthy I might think X is, it's not my job as a judge to impose that. The, the, the Congress can, can do that, or you can amend the Constitution, but my job as a judge is simply to interpret 
what was done when the Constitution was drafted. Now, what do you think the chances are that the the Democrats right now may expand the number of justices to the Supreme Court to try to pack the court, as they did in the 1930s? I I think it's 50-50. I realize that's kind of a cop-out, but yeah. wasn't it interesting that every time one of these politicians, and I don't mean just Joe Biden, I mean people running for all kinds of races. Maybe you've seen the clips when they would be on news programs and they'd be opposite a Republican who would say, so are you going to pack the court? And they would never give a straight answer. I mean, it was like in the old days of the Soviet Union, you know, where Ted Koppel would have somebody on Nightline, like the, the Soviet ambassador, and he hadn't managed to reach the Kremlin yet. So he didn't know what the party <laughs> line was, so we had to just hem and haw the whole interview. It was just like that. So it makes me – I think at the very least they were told, let's, let's make the Republicans wonder about what our intentions are. So don't openly say – uh, one way or the other. Now, strictly speaking, of course, there's nothing in the Constitution that says the court has to be nine justices. It had been seven. It could be 117 if, if you want. Uh, so there's nothing cast in stone about that. But it has gone on for it's been an awfully long time that it's been nine justices. And when Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court in the 30s, as you mentioned, even his own party, uh, a lot of them turned against him because they thought it was such a transparently political move. And the Senate Judiciary Committee even said, we hope that a proposal like this will never again be heard. Because uh, you know, initially when an FDR did that, he claimed that it was because we had a lot of old justices and, you know, they're going to need some help. And so we're going to bring – and yeah, everybody saw through that immediately. <laughs> like, well, come on, right? We all know why you're really doing this. So then he became a lot more blunt about it, that, that you know, my programs are being held up by people living in the horse and buggy days. And so we need to do something about that. I think a lot of Americans still, whether they should or not, have a kind of romantic view of the Supreme Court, that it is apolitical. And I think just a brazenly political grab at it might even turn some some uh, middle-of-the-roaders uh, against them. So I think that at the very least, they'd, they'd have to proceed with extreme caution. Now, let me ask you something. We talked about the politically incorrect guides. Where, where can people find out more about the politically incorrect guides, especially your guide to uh, American history? Well, any... Any bookseller, obviously Amazon and stuff, you, you start typing in politically incorrect guide too, and then it's going to auto-fill in, and you're going to be like a kid in a candy store thinking, oh my gosh, I want the politically incorrect guide to every single one of these doggone things. So put the, just just go type in the politically incorrect guide to on Amazon, and my goodness, are you going to be happy at what you see. Uh, the cartoon that we're making – so there is, a, for example, there is a book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, written by uh, my friend Kevin Gutzman. And that's a great book also. M mine's on American history. His is specifically on the Constitution. And so as we continue the series, we're going to kind of base them on some of the books in the series, except these will be short cartoons that people might watch. The, the trouble with books is that, um, I hate to break this to you, but not a lot of people read nonfiction these days. So if you could put it in cartoon form, you get a lot more traction. <laughs> Very good. Let, let me ask you one question. What do you think is one of the most interesting points of the politically incorrect guide to American history? If you had to name, you know, name one pointer, you think that most people are surprised at, agree with you on, or disagree with you on? What would that point be? And I know I'm, I'm well being fair. Yeah, I know it's 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 like trying to choose my favorite one of my five daughters, right? I can't. I I, I would hesitate to answer that one, but on this. 
I guess I would probably just because when I was on um, in the old days when Alan Combs was still alive, hmm. Sean Hannity had a program on Fox News Channel called Hannity and Combs, and so he was the conservative and Combs was the liberal, and so I was on that because that that show was on when this book first came out. And what surprise? I'm not surprised that Alan Combs didn't know some of my arguments. I don't expect him to. I was a little surprised that Sean Hannity had never heard the argument that the the programs of the 1930s of the New Deal did not were not responsible for the uh, economy eventually recovering. That they actually delayed the depression. There's a huge literature on this uh, from you know non crankish scholars. I assure you, there's a big <laughs> literature on this. And he had never heard that before. He had taken for granted that Franklin Roosevelt saved capitalism from itself and this and that. And I, I again, I would understand why Alan Combs would think this. But what Sean Hannity is like one of the top five commentators you think of in uh, you know right of center radio, and this was all new to him. And I thought, oh, oh, the conservative movement has failed you, my friend, if you have not heard this before. You know, I want to take one aside. My wife Beth wants to make a comment here. Um. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and you almost gave me a heart attack several years ago. And I, this oh is, no, this yes, this is very personal. Our son Michael, this is two thousand and seven, and he is last year of elementary school, and he's going to be going off to high school. And they give them these this barrage of all these tests. Now we are in Brooklyn, New York. And so I went, you know, he got in, I went to pick him up and the test, the t- one of the tests that day had been on American history. So I said, well, how did it go? And he goes, oh, the essay was on the depression. I mean, oh, how, no. and he got how boring and, and they're supposed to give resources on, you know, what they write about. So I said, well, what resource did you put? And he said, the politically incorrect guide oh, to God. American history. <laughs> so now I'm sitting here going, well, he he met he missed that one. So that's the big essay, his big essay. So now I'm going, well, don't say anything, don't say anything. He's just got to learn not to do things sometimes. So anyway, so now nobody knows. You get the 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 scores later on. But now, this is during commencement, and the kids are filing down the aisle, and his social studies teacher comes over to me and says, he made a perfect score on the social, he's the first person that ever made a perfect score on the social studies exam. So I just want to tell you that I panicked when I shouldn't have, because evidently, you are, the book, kudos, Wonderful. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. Well, I, I am so glad that you were able to intervene in this discussion, because let me tell you, that is not how the usual Tom <laughs> Woods book story ends up. <laughs> well, I did not think that that would be the outcome. I'm I'm just thinking somebody that was reading those essays, it, I'm, I'm thinking, well, it was different, and they figured, well, okay, kid, you got this. All right, Tom. You had an original thought. That's good enough. Uh, Tom, again, one last thing as we're finalizing. Can you tell us again where we can access the the cartoon history? Yes, absolutely. Pigseries.com. Pigseries.com. 
Dr. Thomas Woods, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Pleasure was mine. someone who's been touched by cancer it's the second leading cause of death and it took the life of my father john wayne but even in his final days he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer his courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big c as my dad called it so we did something about it and founded the john wayne cancer institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. You know, just as a note, the music you were listening to at the the tail end of the interview, that is The World Upside Down, which was played by the British soldiers who uh, surrendered at Yorktown in in 1781. And, uh, you know, now it does feel like the world's been turned upside down, so I guess that's very appropriate. But for those British soldiers, the fact that they had to surrender to the Americans and the French at Yorktown, the world to them at that point did seem like it was turning, you know, upside down. So, I mean, uh, that, you know, to them, that the British Empire was the, as far as they were concerned, the cultural successor to Rome. You know, it was the new order for them. And suddenly they're defeated by a bunch of upstarts out in the colonies. And, it, I mean, the the only thing you could possibly compare it to would be, well, actually, funnily enough, Britain overcoming their roman conquerors so that's that would be the clearest historical example for any of them but um but i also have to say thank you to professor woods because of that well you heard the story from mom but um that perfect score on the social studies test was due to his research so always be grateful for the people who put the work in to make sure you have your sources arranged you know, I just thought of something. We should probably do a little bit more Revolutionary War history, Michael. Yes. Um, I agree with that, absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, one of our favorite interviews when we were talking about General Kosciuszko, the great Polish patriot who had a, a, a truly remarkable life. I mean, he came over here as an engineer, helped the Americans win the Revolutionary War. And besides George Washington, I think you could make the argument 
he had more to do to win in the Revolutionary War than, than any other person. He was the engineer who built the fortifications at West Point. He was the man who, who made up the defenses at Saratoga, which led to that great victory. Canada and, couldn't help him. Yeah, and he also was, you know, in, in the Southern Campaign, he was the one who led to the strategy where Cornwallis had to retreat to Yorktown, Virginia. And then he went over to Europe. He wrote the Polish Constitution. Um, he was imprisoned by the Russians. Uh, he was Napoleon offered him command of the Polish armies during that time period. And he wrote a letter to the French people saying, be careful of Napoleon. He will lead you to your graves. So, And, and he also donated his entire salary as a Revolutionary War general with $25,000, which is a lot of money back in 1780, he donated the whole thing to free and educate black slaves. So, I mean, a, a truly great man a, ahead of his time. You know, a lot of times we see these films or whatever, and we take somebody with, you know, was born in the 18th century, and you try to give him 21st century ideals, but this guy was born ahead of his time and was really one of the great freedom fighters in the, in, in the history of the world. So maybe we can do something on that again. Well, that would be wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back next week at the same times, I hope. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Bye-bye, everybody. My son, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.